I'm in the zone right now. I just tied my shoe extra tight. So laces are up. Let's rock and roll with these announcements. <laughs> um, again, good morning to those of you that are watching from home. Good morning to all of you. It is so evident that hope is coming and the world is opening up a bit. And that is exciting as evidenced by who we see here this morning. Um, and we just, those of you that are at home, we miss you, and we cannot wait for it to be safe for all of us to gather again. Um, I'm getting some claps on that. Let's just give that a, yeah, a big clap. Many of you know that an announcement came out that our county is going to move into phase three next week, and that means some changes for us as we gather, good changes, um, a lot easier changes than this restriction um, and trying to figure out how do we do this. But one of the most significant changes that we have is that we will be able to, to sit together in households of two. Now, if you, like two households, sorry, two households combined. So the Huguenins can sit with the Larsons, vice versa. Now, that has been actually available to us for a while. We just didn't know it because they tend to bury the document really deep and it's hard to find. Um, and so we just wanna be thoughtful about that and we want you to know your comfort is our first priority. And if you do not want to be sitting side by side with another family, that is absolutely okay. You don't have to feel bad about that and you are welcome here and we will save space for you and make sure that you are sitting distant from everyone around you. Um, and so you'll notice as you RSVP to church in future weeks, there's a little box that says, are you comfortable? You simply click yes or no, and we will honor whatever that is. So um, please do not stop coming because you're afraid you're gonna have to sit next to somebody and things are opening up and moving um, too quickly for you. We just want to allow a little bit more space for our gathering and more seats to open up. So there's that. Um, now to the announcement about, announcements about what's going on around here. First of all, we have our opportunity to serve at Cedar Way Elementary School this coming Tuesday. And we have a list of items that we are looking for. It's potatoes, carrots, onions, um, oatmeal. I think it's behind me, bananas. So I will not keep trying to guess what those items are. But if you would like to participate in that, we have a digital sign up for that. And you simply text the word Cedar Way to the Brickview number and it will automatically send you a link to that sign up. Or you can fill out your online communication card and we will reach out to you and get you that link as well. Um, on that digital sign-up, you'll also notice that there are some items there for Vision House. They are in need of a few things, and those are added to that list. And so if you're just like, I really only want to know about Vision House stuff, it is the same thing, but everything on that digital sign-up is labeled as to whether or not it's Cedar Way or Vision House. If you want future, future alerts about how to help with Vision House, again, you would text that Brickview number. Um, the word vision to that, and then we will keep you updated and kind of auto send you some text messages, or you can also sign up on your online communication card. 
Um, we want to thank all of you and those of you that are at home for filling out our Easter survey. We got those back quickly enough to get a capture into what people's intentions are and comfort levels are with Easter, and it's enough that we will be having two services. So we will have a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service. Those are identical services that you can sign up for. However, what's not identical is that the 9 o'clock service will be running a full kitsch program for your kids. At the 11 o'clock service, it's babysitting only. Somebody just signed up for church. <laughs> that is so exciting. <laughs> that is our Saturday night, friends. Um, hi, Mike and Jane, if you're watching. They're in Arizona right now. They're watching the Mariners. How cool is that? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and put this on Do Not Disturb because, <laughs> you know. You guys, one time I was giving a presentation, I forgot to turn off my airdrop, and it was students, which they're tech savvy, and they were airdropping me all sorts of pictures that came up on my screen. Not every one of them was appropriate. And I'm like in the crux of telling people, like, the best thing you can do as a leader is to serve other people, and I'm getting real excited about it. And then there's like, I think someone took a picture of their elbow right in here, if you can envision what that might be. And I was like, I had to stop the whole thing and be like, okay, I've made a huge error. It's good learning for all of you that are going to present someday. Turn your airdrop off. Now, I don't know how to get in there and do that quickly, so stop airdropping me, please. I'm going to die. I'm sweating. So, okay, that's... We were at Kids Church. Okay, Kids Church. So the 11 o'clock service is babysitting only. If you find yourself available, we reach out to you and say, hey, could you help with our kids programming? Um, your kids can attend back to back the program as well as the babysitting as well. Um, and then we thought this would be really cool, and this is a special announcement from those of you at home that are still feeling like for whatever reason, and for many of you, it's because of health things that you can't just be moving out into the world like the rest of everyone else. And so we want to just allow you to do church in community on Easter, and we want to reserve parking spots for you in our parking lot where you can drive up in your car. We will give you the Brookview Wi-Fi password. You'll have to bring your own device, but you can listen in the car, and you can look side to side and see that you are with other family members at Brookview. So um, we want you to RSVP for that so that we can get you that Wi-Fi password and we can make sure that we reserve a seat for you or a parking spot, not a seat, you're going to sit in your car, um, a parking spot for you where our Wi-Fi is strong enough for you to be able to watch that live service online. So all of those places to sign up for Easter service and any next Sunday service and the one after are at brookviewchurch.com forward slash church. And you'll kind of scroll down and you'll find the dates and the time. So RSVPing early is really helpful for us as we plan. You'll notice on the Easter sign up, we have a box for you to click that says, hey, if your service fills up, would you be willing to move to another service? And so you can kind of let us know. And that way we know if everyone's coming to 9 o'clock, we need a few more people to come to 11. So um, go ahead and sign up as soon as you know that you can and RSVP your kids. Those are separate sign-ups. So if you sign up for church service here, you'll also need to sign your kids up for church. I think that's pretty self-explanatory when you go to that RSVP. 
Um, we are getting excited to do some spring cleaning around here. I don't know if excited is the word. Do you say excited when you're like, we're going to scrub some toilets and dust everything and spot clean the carpets and put bark out in the in pressure wash the walkways. We are just going to welcome people in. Um, and so if you can join us for that, that's happening on March 27th on a Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the way that you can sign up for that is by texting SPRING to that number, and it will automatically ask you to tell us how many people are coming so that we can prepare some food for everyone that comes. And then, um, or else, you can also fill out your online communication card. Which brings me to the next and last thing. Fill out your online communication card. We would love to hear from you. And um, you can sign up or respond to anything that we've talked about this morning, as well as send in prayer requests or comments or anything you have going on. That's it. Wow. Good morning, you guys. This place is like as full as we've been in a long time. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, so last week, we started this series called The Pursuit of Happiness. Why? Well, because we all want to be happy. And we began last week with a, a, a foundational principle, and it's this. I, I will never be happy if the ultimate goal of my life is to be happy. Happy is one of those things that comes to us only as a byproduct when we're chasing something else. And what is that? Meaning. And there is a huge difference between the pursuit of happy and the pursuit of meaning. It seems as though God has wired us so that we will only grow in sustainable joy when there is increased meaning in our life. In other words, if you aim at meaning, you tend to get happy thrown in. So if we want to be individuals in a community filled with joy, then we need to pursue something better than the happy life, and that's the meaningful life. And so last week, we looked at two realities about this. The first was that suffering can interrupt the happy life, but suffering is powerless to interrupt the meaningful life. So if you pursue happy, then, then you need your circumstances to be just right. If you pursue meaning, you can find it even when the circumstances of your life are not what you would want them to be. And as I said last week, like whenever we take people to Haiti, they're always surprised. They're always surprised because the level of suffering is in Haiti, it's even worse than they expect. They get an image in their mind of what it will be like, and it is always worse. 
People are living in trash, and they have no jobs, and they have very little hope. But here's what's the most surprising. Somehow, even in the midst of all of that mess, there's joy. Despite horrific circumstances, they, they still joke, they still laugh, they still smile, which feels really weird given how they live. And so we tend to look at that, coming from our context, we look at that and we think, man, if I had to live like that, I would be inconsolably depressed. How in the world are these people so filled with joy? But it just comes down to this. Suffering is powerless to stop the meaningful life. And people in Haiti may be in poverty and they may be suffering, but they still have love. They still have kids and they still have friends and they still have family and they still have community that matters to them very much. They know what it is to serve. They know what it is to sacrifice for one another. Their lives aren't any less meaningful than ours, actually. And that kind of led to one other observation. Meaning comes most when I invest deeply in people, right? Like mostly life is about relationships. What, what matters to God, what matters more than anything else in life is just people. Nobody has unhappy relationships and a happy life. And nobody has joy-filled, meaningful relationships and then a joyless life. What matters most is people. Like, really, what matters most is people, which means it's not success. It's not wealth. It's not popularity. It's not fame. It's not even the absence of hardship. What matters most is people. And you can walk through pretty much anything if you do it with people that you love. And you do it with people that love you. If you do it in, in connected rela relational circumstances, relationships seem to matter even more than circumstances. And yet, when we feel unhappy, what's the first thing we look to? Our circumstances. We just naturally think, we, we really think this. We think with this going on, I can't be happy. But I will be happy when my circumstances change and everything starts to move in the direction that I want. All through this series, we're, we're looking at Paul's words in the book of Philippians. This letter that he wrote to Christ-following friends in the city of Philippi. This letter that Paul wrote from prison, okay, where he was in chains simply for being a Christian. And yet, his letter to the Philippians is all about joy. And today, as we dive into part two of this, would you stand as we read Philippians? Again, these words are coming from a man in chains, in prison. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with us. Okay, you can be seated. Clinical psychologists sometimes break happiness down into a simple formula. Okay, H equals S plus C plus V. Makes total sense, right? I mean, you got that? Okay, so what in the world does that mean? Well, the idea is that your level of happiness, H, is determined by three things. By S, okay, your biological set point. Okay, plus C, the conditions of your life, plus V, the voluntary activities that you do. But these three factors do not break down into even slices of the pie. There is a, a famous study done by Sonia Lyabomirsky, who's a professor from the University of California, and she's a well-known researcher on happiness. And her conclusion was that about 50% of our happiness is genetic. Meaning, it's, it's just our disposition that's kind of wired into us from birth. Then about 40% is what we think and do with our mind and body. And only about 10% is based on our life circumstances. Only 10% comes from what happens or doesn't happen to us. Now, okay, one way of reading the data is that some of us are just screwed. All right, And you know who you are. You've been like, I've been telling people for years, so I'm screwed. <laughs> Why? Because 50% is genetic? Are you serious? Like, wow, there's nothing you can do about it? It's just genetic? It's like, well, great. Thanks, great grandpa for that. <laughs> you know, for that genetic code. Okay, but, but actually, that wasn't her point at all. She pointed out that 40% is not genetic or circumstantial. You, you actually have control over 40% of your happiness. And that's a lot. So on her webpage, she writes this, and I, I think this is profound. She, she writes, I have always been struck by the capacity of some individuals to be remarkably happy, even in the face of stress, trauma, or adversity. Thus, my earlier research efforts had focused on trying to understand why some people are happier than others. To this end, my approach had been to explore the cognitive and motivational processes that distinguish individuals who show exceptionally high and low levels of happiness. These processes include social comparison, okay, how people compare themselves to peers, dissonance reduction, how people justify both trivial and important choices in their lives, self-evaluation, how people judge themselves, personal perception, how people, think, uh, how people think about others, and dwelling or rumination. And she, here's what she concludes. My students and I have found that truly happy individuals construe life events and daily situations in ways that seem to maintain their happiness, while unhappy individuals construe experiences in ways that seem to reinforce their unhappiness. Now, her study caused all kinds of controversy, like in the scientific community. For one, it's, it's notoriously hard to measure a person's level of happiness. 
Okay, and then second, several clinicians have debated her genetic percentage, that like 50% of happiness is a matter of genetics. Some argue it's higher. Most argue it's, it's actually much lower. But while, what everyone seems to agree on is the 10%. They all seem to agree very little of our happiness is based on our circumstances. So the thing most of us assume is the main factor, the thing we put the most effort and energy into changing is actually the least significant of the three factors. So with this data in mind, we could summarize it this way. 90% of our happiness is internal and only 10% is external. Now, that's interesting to me because the major religions and, and mo many of the most respected sages of our world have actually been telling us this for thousands of years. From Christian theology to Greek philosophy, Buddhist psychology to modern secular neuroscience, they all agree happiness is far less about what happens to you and far more about how you react to it. And part of the reason researchers oppose the conclusions of Lyle Bomersky is that while genetics do play a large role in temperament, like happiness, those genetics, it turns out, are not static. They can be changed. Brain chemistry can actually be rewired over time. And this is huge. You guys, this is so cool. While most brain development stops sometime in childhood, or for men, you know, when they're like 30. <laughs> right? This is when we, we start to grow up. Just got there myself, but... Okay, well, while most brain development stops sometime in childhood or, or, or slightly after that, the brain's joy center, and I think that in and of itself is pretty cool, your brain has a joy center, and it's locatable and observable in the right prefrontal cortex. And here's something awesome. The joy center is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. So... You can grow your joy center for your entire life. You can cultivate it. You can exercise it. You can increase it. Or you can suppress it and starve it and drain it empty. Now, everything I've just explained is thoroughly secular data, right? Some of you are like, is this church? Do we, do we love Jesus? What is this, a psychology class? Okay, I'm getting there. My gosh, stop judging me. Okay, this is, this, so far, this is not Christian thinking, the teaching of Jesus. This, this is what non-Christian researchers are telling us. But, but if this is true for people in general, like apart from God, how much truer is this for those who are walking with God? People perpetually being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Guys, when you, when you think about it, Within us is a capacity for joy far greater than most of us ever dare to actualize. And so this brings me back to what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Paul encourages us to actualize every bit of joy that we can. So let's, let's work through this and, and really think about it. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul is saying, Joy doesn't just happen to us. We have to choose it. 
And we often think of emotions as something that just sort of happened to us, like as if we don't really have any sort of say-so over them. But what Paul is saying is you actually don't have to be a slave to your emotions. You have some degree of say-so. So I've titled this message, Not a Slave, because we've all been given freedom. We are active participants and contributors to our emotional states. Why? Because our feelings flow out of whatever it is that we choose to think about and focus in on most. And while you may not have control of your emotions, you do have a ton of control over what you think about or what you choose to pay attention to. And this is what makes it possible for us to influence our emotion because because wisely or foolishly, in healthy or unhealthy ways, we all manage our emotions by what we give our attention to. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Okay, the million-dollar question is, well, how? Right, I'd like to rejoice. Right, how? Is there a way to cultivate greater and greater levels of joy? Because we will really set ourselves up for failure if we think, well, I guess I just need to try harder to be happy. You ever done that? So please understand, Paul is, is not saying that to be happy, we, 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 we become happy by trying harder to be happy. Paul insisted on a principle for growth and transformation that we see all throughout his writings, all throughout his letters. And we could summarize it this way. Significant change requires training in addition to trying. Growing in joy is not something you you do just by trying to grow in joy. It doesn't come simply through willpower. It doesn't come simply through more effort. It does come by habits and practices and spiritual disciplines and rhythms that begin to form us into more joy-filled people. In other words, more joy will come if we organize our life around practices that help us pay attention to all that is good, true, and beautiful. If you begin paying more attention to what's good and true and beautiful, and you do it in communion with God, it does something in you. Something in you that's capable of growing and growing. You begin to enjoy simple pleasures and moments of beauty. You begin to delight in the blessings of God all around. And it begins to awaken your heart and your mind. And as we turn that flywheel of joy over time and we invest in it more and more, we invest more energy and more time and more intention into communion with God. And we delight in the beauty and the good all around us. That flywheel starts to create its own energy. And it gets easier and it gets easier and this thing gets faster and faster until we just naturally become more and more joyful people. Or the opposite. I mean, if you think about it, both happiness and unhappiness are self-perpetuating states of mind. And that's why many people, as they age, either become more and more joyful like more grateful and more flexible and at ease in their own body and with their own life, or they become more and more negative and grumpy and critical and pessimistic. So Paul says, be intentional. Choose well because the consequences are real. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He continues on. Let your, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, noticing the good that's around you, present your request to God. Now, this is pretty simple, right? Like, always remember that God is with you, okay? Got that? Uh, that you are not walking through life on your own, ever, that your Father who loves you is with you and that he sees and he cares. And so when you feel worry or anxiety or fear, Paul says, pray. Don't just ruminate on all that could go wrong. Just stop, turn your attention to God, and pray. And Paul says something mystical is possible. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you guys, I have experienced this again and again and again, and so have many of you. What happens is I will start to go down the rabbit hole of worry and fear and anxiety, but if instead of focusing on my situation and my fears, I gaze elsewhere, if instead I look to God and I start talking to him about all of it, then I'm reminded of how good he is that he's working, that this situation will not have the last word. And if I turn my gaze from my worry to Jesus, there's peace that transcends understanding, and it sweeps over me. Now, I I do not think that this is like a Jedi mind trick. I think that actually this is how abiding in Christ is meant to work. When, When, like a branch, I stay connected to the vine, to Jesus then the life of that vine just flows into me. But the thing is, I have to choose to set my attention on Jesus. To take it off of whatever it is that's bringing me anxiety. Instead, just fix my eyes on Jesus. You guys, in the, in the long, very dark season that I will not get into right now, where I was legitimately scared for my son's life. You guys, I had to do this every night. Like every night, because I would wake up and feel the weight of all that was happening, and I would feel utterly, completely overwhelmed, hopeless, and I couldn't sleep, and it was, it, it was hell. And the only way that I got through it was Paul's words right here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me just ask you, do you you want the peace of God to guard you? Then I'm just going to tell you the best thing I know, and it's, it's very, very simple. When you start to feel worry or anxiety or fear, turn your attention away from what's causing it and pray. Take your eyes off of the thing and put them on Jesus. So let me just pause right here and ask you to think about you. What what keeps you up or wakes you up at night? What is it that steals peace and joy from you? 
What do you need to think about less and pray about a lot more? I know this is absurdly simple, but it, it, can, it can transform your life. Okay, Paul continues. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And as we all know, like you can't just will joy. You can't just will an emotion. Well, it's time for me to feel, eh, you know. There's no happy or, or mad or calm switch that we just flip on and off. We, we don't have that level of control over our emotions. And because of that, many of us just sort of give up on the idea altogether. We just sort of live at the mercy of our emotions. But again, we do have much more control over our mind, what we think about, what we give our attention to. And as a general rule, our feelings follow our thinking. Okay, like right, right now, if you think of somebody that you hate, you go, Jesus told me not to hate, okay. You think of somebody that's hurt you. Doesn't usually take all that long to think of somebody. But if you just have somebody come to mind that's hurt you, and you start thinking about all the wrong that they've done to you, all the hurt that they've caused, all that they've taken from you, what do you feel? You feel anger, hurt, sadness. You're welcome. <laughs> just here to bless you this morning. Okay, let me, let me give you a little less intense, and like a different, less intense example. You guys, if you stop and think about the state of the Seahawks, <laughs> it is a mess. And let me tell you what a mess it is, okay? The salary cap is decreasing, meaning they have less and less money to spend on players. And the Hawks have tons and tons of players that are free agents, Okay, in other words, they can leave Seattle unless they agree to sign a new contract. Let me just name some of the free agents. <laughs> Running back Chris Carson. Running back Carlos Hyde. Wide receiver David Moore. Tight end Greg Olson. Tight end Jacob Hollister. Tight end Luke Wilson. I know. Luke Wilson. Let's pretend he just caught a pass and we were in the stadium. What would, what would we all say? Luke. Right? Okay, let's go. In addition, there's a bunch of free agent offensive linemen. And I won't name them because no one cares. <laughs> but apparently, Russell really cares. Like, he cares a lot, we're finding out. I'll get to that in a minute. First, let's talk defense. More free agents. Okay, edge rusher, Benson Mayoa. Interior lineman, Puna Ford. Hey, Brooklyn, what do we call Puna Ford? Human the human bowling ball. That's right, girl, because that dude is uh, 5'11", 340 pounds, and he has like the lowest center of gravity in human history, and he knocks people over like bowling pins. He's really, really good, but he's a free agent. How about these names? Linebacker K.J. Wright. Linebacker Bruce Urban, linebacker Shaquem Griffin, cornerback Shaquille Griffin, both brothers. 
cornerback Quentin Dunbar. And then they just released Carlos Dunlap. Okay, and then you got, you got Russ wanting to be traded. Okay, wait, not really. He's just open to being traded. He doesn't want to be traded. But if he were to be traded, he'd be willing to go to the Bears, Cowboys, Saints, or Raiders. Look, the Seahawks are in legit crisis. And if you stop and think about that for, for too long, how do you feel? How do you feel? Don't even care. <laughs> you missed the whole rant. <laughs> okay, look, man. Your thoughts determine your emotions. Okay. And if you don't care about the Seahawks, then thoughts about that are not going to create a lot of emotions for you. But for those of us that... Okay, so think of it like this. What we give our attention to is the person we become. Your mind is a powerful thing. Your mind is capable of making a heaven of hell, or it can make a hell of heaven. What we think about, what we watch on TV, what we talk about, what we let ruminate in our mind in the quiet moments has the potential to make our life a living hell, to entrap us in the prison of our own mind over decades, or it can lead us into freedom in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And if you're anything like me, I have seasons, I don't know if it's hormonal or what, I have seasons where this is really, hey, guys have hormones too. (laughs) I I have seasons where this is really hard. And my mind just, for whatever reason, it just naturally goes to the bad, not to the good, right? And this is, of course, further intensified by the media and the way it makes money off of our human bent or our proclivity toward the negative, right? They're trying to give you news. They're trying to get you to click on stuff, right? So, So we have to, at some level, we have to go against the grain of our culture, Um, N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Philippians chapter 4, says this. He says, The command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. I mean, it's, it's good to think about, like, what are the habits of mind instilled to me by my iPhone? He goes on, he says, read the newspapers. This is a little bit of an older quote. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, the unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. But he asks, is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and to celebrate? So so joy is a cultivated way of seeing the world in our mind's eye, just like cynicism or anger or fear or hate. These are all self-perpetuating states of mind that we cultivate over time. So, what are you cultivating these days? It matters. 
Look at what Paul says next. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And there it is again. The God of peace, the peace of God. Paul is saying, if you learn to see Jesus and the kingdom and you learn to see circumstances the way I do, if you follow my example, remember I'm writing to you from prison, If you learn to see how I see, the peace of God, the shalom of God will be with you. So one way of just sort of summing up all of this would be to simply say, joy is a cultivated way to see the world. And you get to decide what you're going to pay attention to. You get to decide how you're going to spend your time, what you will focus on and what you will not focus on. Richard Foster does a great job of explaining how necessary this really is. He says, God has established a created order full of excellent and good things. And it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. This is God's appointed way to joy. If, if we think, and I love his honesty here, if we think that we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things, and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is, full of joy. Now, there are all kinds of ways to go about doing this. I want to give you, let me just quickly give you a list of 10 things that come to mind for me. This is in no particular order. Um, Let me give you 10 things. Number one, music. Okay? I, I use Spotify. It's the month, best money that I spend every month. I don't even know what I'm spending, but it's worth it. Um, and, and mostly I listen to worship music. I know, shocker. But you guys, like, there is so much good stuff out there, and I, I just love what it does to my mind and my heart. And so I listen everywhere, everywhere that I can. I listen in the car when I work out. I listen while I'm prepping sermons. I listen when I have work to do around the house. I go for walks, and I listen one of the greatest tools to cultivate joy for me is music. And I think about it sometimes. I'm like, what did people do before electricity? <laughs> I mean, think about that. All music had to be performed live. That's a really good reason to go to church, folks. I mean, can you imagine? Okay, but not me. I have, I have an iPhone and I have Bose headphones. and oof. But let me just say, I don't only listen to worship music, okay? Now, one of my favorite things is taking Brooklyn to basketball practice, which these days happens to be in Richmond Beach area, or to take her to the village or wherever I'm taking her, because what we do, this is just what we, we rock out in the car together. And sometimes we listen to worship music, okay? She likes worship music. It works out good. We show each other stuff that we've been listening to. It's awesome, awesome. But often, these days, what we've kind of been doing is, every time we go somewhere, as soon as we get in the car, I hand her my phone, and she makes a playlist, like five or six, or however many songs it's going to take to get us where we're going. And so right now, she's into all this folky stuff. Uh, So there's a ton of, like, Mumford & Sons, yeah, a ton of Lumineers, and all this other folky stuff, and then we just crank it, and we sing along, and we rock out, and it's awesome. And so this week, I, I took her to the village here, and um, she made a playlist. And for some reason, something in that playlist, it reminded me of the greatest showman. 
So, after I dropped her off, on my way home, I blasted the greatest showman all the way home. You guys, a 48-year-old pastor rocking the greatest showman. And if you remember this week, like, it was beautiful outside, was it not? I mean, it was sunny and clear, and you could see the mountains from everywhere, right? And I've got a million dreams blaring in my car, (laughs) filling my soul and expanding my heart. And when I pulled into the driveway, it it just happened to be the best song on the album. And so I just let loose. What if we rewrite the stars? Say you were made to be mine. It sounded better in my car. (laughs) But do you guys know what I felt? Stupid. (laughs) But, But also, some joy, right? Look, okay, look, music is powerful. It's such a gift. Okay, number two, uh, laughter. Just laughter. You can feel joy just by looking for reasons to laugh, hopefully not at somebody's expense, right? I saw a study this week, you guys, this is amazing. I saw a study this week that said, on average, kids laugh 400 times a day. Adults, 15. That is sad. You guys, we could stand to laugh a little more. Some of us need to, like, recapture that childish inclination toward a good laugh. Okay, number three, storytelling. Um, This is interesting. What what happens when you show up to a wedding or a birthday party or some kind of a formal special occasion and someone gives a speech? What do they they talk about nine times out of ten? Do they quote philosophy? No, what what do they do? They they tell stories, right? I, I did Tony and Rebecca's wedding, and at the reception, uh, Rick Ellersick got on a mic. Oh, man. And, of course, Rick cried, um, which, you know, I can make fun of that. <laughs> but he also told stories. You know, I mean, I, he just told stories. He's like, oh, I remember when Tony was three and he ran into the street naked, you know, or whatever, whatever it was. And, and, and I, I don't fully remember what it was, but it was Rick. And man, it was fun. At least, at least for me, it was fun. But storytelling leads to so much joy. And I love that about gatherings of family or longtime friends. They just tell stories. You guys remember when? And they laugh. I mean, you want some joy? Find some people that you have some history with. Tell some stories. Okay, number four, holidays, right? Christmas, Easter, Valentine's Day, opening day for the Mariners. Yeah, I mean, human beings recognize that there is real value in celebrating and putting annual things or sort of regular things on the calendar to celebrate. Number five, traditions. Traditions are huge. Every January, many of you know, every January, Tim and I go to Cannon Beach with a bunch of other pastors and pastor couples, and we shop at the outlets, especially Nike. <laughs> and we, that's, this is why I look so good, right? Just all the working out from that Nike outlet. Okay. Um, I've digressed. We walk the beach, and we enjoy the long drive together, and we process life. And we, we just, this is one of many. We have all these traditions that we just sort of work into life. Number six, the Sabbath. 
one day a week, just deciding to let go of the have-tos and, and do the get-tos. And for Jen and I, Sunday isn't, isn't this. I love you guys, but it, is, <laughs> it isn't Sunday. So we take Monday, and we usually sleep in, and then we try to find whatever we can to just fill our tanks as much as possible. Usually includes going for a long walk if the weather is halfway decent, right? And it's just time to notice God's good world. Number seven is gratitude. One of the great joy producers for me just comes from making a list sometimes, just writing down all the things that I'm thankful for. Sometimes I do this in the process of soaping. Sometimes I do it when I'm praying. Um, I've even just made a, kind of a random list, like as long as I can, just stopping to think about all that, that's truly good in my life. And number eight, spending time with joyful people. Joyful people are a gift. Right? Bob Crozier, right? And Haley Beckman. Joyful people are a gift. And um, so one of the things that Jen and I will do when we have flexibility in our schedule is we'll just reach out to people that we consider to be like easy and enjoyable. And we'll just have them over for dinner or go somewhere with them. People that are filled with joy because it's contagious. Now some of you might be like, how come you've never invited me over like that? <laughs> okay, I'm totally kidding about that. I'm totally, there is this thing going on in the world, some of you have heard of it, it's called COVID. And we have a very busy schedule, right, in, in many seasons. And so, to be honest with you, I really do wish that we could hang out with most of you more often. And before, okay, before you think I'm being a jerk about this, I had to tell you guys something. I would, so in my online groups this week, we were processing last week's message because that's what we do. And so I, I asked everyone to list three to five of the most joyful people that they know. And I gave them like one minute, had them write it down, and then I had them all read their list and tell us a little bit about why those people are joyful to them. And to be honest, I was really surprised to see my family a lot on those lists. And I mean, it makes sense, I guess. Uh, for me, for instance, I had, I had Brooklyn Huguenin as absolute number one on my list. I mean, that kid, she was born with joy and almost has like an inhuman capacity for it. Like if you had to choose like a life theme song for her, it would be everything is awesome, <laughs> Right? But, but Kate and Jen were on lots of people's lists, and Cam was in there a little bit. You know who didn't make anybody's list? <laughs> Me. I mean, not, not even a brown noser in the group. Like, <laughs> Okay, so, like, if 50% of happiness is genetic, apparently I did not hit the genetic lottery for joy. I get it. It's fine, I guess. I still love you guys or whatever. Okay, number nine, feasting. You guys, there is nothing like gathering with people you enjoy around an extravagant meal. Um, is it any wonder that the main way Jesus asked us to remember him, it wasn't through fasting or, or even prayer, but through a meal? And what's the meal? 
Is it Brussels sprouts and kale and prune juice? No, none of that, right? It's bread and wine. That's my kind of meal. And the early church, they called it the agape feast. And it was a full meal that they ate together in celebration, this huge feast. And yet somehow over the years in the church, it has devolved into something else. In the Mass, it became a, the, like this somber event, and that's just sort of become standard in most churches everywhere. But it began as a party to remember the body and blood of Jesus, a feast. And I just, I'll just say, I'm giving more and more thought to the reality of that these days, but I will not digress into giving you any more thoughts about that. Okay, last thing. Number 10, get outdoors. You guys, this, this week was amazing. I mean, the sun and the clear skies and the mountains. We, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. We do. And so, man, like, it is so good to get outside, whether it's gardening or landscaping or walking or just sitting at a park. Um, Brooklyn has basketball practice at a church in Richmond Beach. That's where they practice these, these days. And so while waiting for her, I just one day just kind of drove, and I stumbled into a piece of heaven. I really. Um, it's called Saltwater Park. Do any of you know that place? Wow, yeah. So I, this, on Wednesday, I was writing this message, and I needed Wi-Fi, so I was sitting right out, like outside of Starbucks and using their Wi-Fi. Um, and I decided after sitting there in the cold that I needed to stretch it out. And so I, I went down to the park and stretched my legs. And you guys, it was breathtaking. And so I got a video for you. But then yesterday, Brooke had another practice over there. And you could see the mountains even more. And so I took another one. And so you guys, I want you to check this out. Please notice the professionalism in the camera work. <laughs> Here is the view from Saltwater Park yesterday around noon. Get outdoors. Now, I just want to say, these are, these are just ideas, right? You could come up with a hundred other things. And you've you got to make your own list. But please notice on my list the blend of the religious and the regular. A, a wise person once said, religion must never become your life. Your life must become your religion. Meaning all of your life must become a way of living before God. And so I purposely did not put a bunch of spiritual disciplines on my list, other than like Sabbath, at least kind of the more churchy ones, because the whole point is to lean into God and his joy in all that we do. 
whether that's a classical list of spiritual disciplines and prayer and scripture and all that stuff, or making pancakes with the kids on a Saturday. Paul wants us to see that God is in all of it. And I think this, this is part of what he's getting at in verse 5 when he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. You can commune with God in all things. And as, as I grow in Christ, I'm just realizing more and more, mature apprentices of Jesus don't make distinctions between spiritual and non-spiritual activities. The more mature a person becomes in Christ, the more they realize that all of life is a spiritual activity. And the more they learn to commune with God in all of it. And so for today, let me, let me just simply point out, if you want to be happy, if you want to be a person filled with and emanating joy, then you have to cultivate it. It doesn't just happen automatically. You have to cultivate it by what you give your attention. And so let me just close with a very simple question. What do you need to do or think about less? And what do you need to do or think about more? It's not a complicated question. But it's really, really important, actually. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this invitation into joy. And so for some of us, it doesn't come all that naturally, apparently. Um, but even so, it can be expanded and it can be grown and it can be that flywheel that begins, maybe the first turn or two is hard, but it starts to pick up its own energy and get faster and faster and go with more and more ease. God, I pray that you would, I pray that you would make us into people of joy. And I pray that you would help us to identify rhythms or patterns in our life of focusing in things that maybe are not moving us in that direction the way that we could be moved if we would make a few shifts and a few tweaks. What are we, what are we spending a lot of time thinking about that we could spend a lot less time thinking about? What are we not thinking about or not thinking about often enough that we could really fix our gaze on more? God, would you make those things clear to us? And as we do those things, as we make those shifts, God, would you meet us in all of it and fill us with your joy? Amen.